right. If you do have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and open up to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. We're going to be spending time in the first 12 verses of the second chapter. So we've made it through chapter 1. Now we're going to be moving through the Gospel of John with a little bit more pace. We are in John chapter 2. And in this text, we have a remarkable story about Jesus. And it's a story that I assume that most of us have heard in some way, shape, form, or fashion. If not, that's totally fine. I don't think you're going to find it difficult to follow. In fact, I'm I'm sure you're going to discover that it piques your interest at multiple points, that it draws you in, that it reveals some wonderful things about Jesus in a pretty fascinating way. But if you have grown up in church, I'm just assuming that you've most likely heard this passage, this story several times in your life. That even if you haven't really grown up in church, I'm I'm also going to assume that you've picked up this phrase from somewhere about turning water into wine. Perhaps you've heard that. Well, if you're wondering where it comes from, it comes from right here in the Bible. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And even though this passage is a familiar one, that doesn't mean the purpose of the passage is familiar. So perhaps you feel knowledgeable about all the events and you could sort of recap the story and explain it to someone, but maybe you haven't quite figured out why Jesus' first miracle is at a wedding. Or if there's any significance in turning water into wine. Or why Jesus speaks to his mother the way that he does. This story is often more than meets the eye. And I I think John intends for us to spend some time in his gospel thinking hard over the things that he wrote, wrestling with it, maybe reading it a few times so we can begin to see the significance on each page. Because, of course, there's immediate things that jump off the page when we read it for the first time. But when we read it for the second time through, the third time through, we begin to see how the end of the book makes sense of the beginning and vice versa. And I think some of that is going on in this story as well. For instance, in verse 11 of chapter 2, Right after Jesus performs this miracle of turning water into wine, John makes a comment about it. He says this, the first of his signs. So John calls this miracle a sign. Did you know that's John's preferred way of speaking about Jesus's miracles? He calls them signs. And calling it a sign is different than just calling it a miracle. It is a miracle, But it's more than a miracle. Jesus wasn't a miracle worker for miracle working sake. He performed miracles for a purpose. He did them as a sign to point to a bigger and greater reality. That's what signs do. Signs signify something. Signs are significant because of what they signify. So when you go outside... And the clouds begin to darken and the wind begins to howl. You take it as a sign that a storm is coming. Which is almost a perfect illustration because Jesus refers to something like that in the book of Matthew. You don't have to turn there. But Jesus is talking in the book of Matthew to a group of people who don't believe in him. Who don't see the miracles he's doing as a sign of who he is. And this is what he says to them. You say in the morning it will be stormy today. For the sky is red and threatening. So you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. 
So just as the signs in the sky point to something about the weather, the signs of Jesus's miracles point to something about him. Now, at the end of the book, the Gospel of John, John tells us exactly why he included the particular signs that he included. He gives us this overarching purpose of his writing. He says in John chapter 20, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. In other words, Jesus did stuff like this all the time. He did signs like this all the time. I didn't write all of them, but the ones that I have written, verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So Jesus did these signs in the presence of his disciples to signify who he is, that he's the Christ, that he's the son of God. And John says he wrote them down, the ones he's included. He wrote them down so that you and I would read it and so we would believe in him so that we would have life. We cannot lose focus of that overarching purpose, my friends, when we read this story about Jesus at a wedding, turning water into wine. Because if we lose the focus, if we lose focus of the purpose of this book, the miracles just become about the miracles. Which, by the way, all the unbelievers in this book were totally fine with just looking at Jesus' miracles and nothing more. The point is not about water. The point is not about wine. The point is not about water turning into wine because the point isn't about the miracle. The miracle is about the point. Jesus didn't do miracles as the point. He did miracles to make a point. Because all the miracles are signs about who he is so that we would believe and have life. Which which means this morning, our goal is not just to stare at the sign. Our goal is to read the sign and to do what it says to do. And we're going to see that the neons, this sign is a neon sign with this blinking arrow pointing at Jesus saying, believe in him. That's, that's the purpose. That's why John 2, 1 through 12 is included. So in order to do that, in order to see this sign, we're going to do a couple of things. For the majority of this morning, we're going to follow the flow of this story in four parts. So that's the first thing we're going to do. Follow the flow of this story in four parts. And then at the end, we're going to see how this story shows his glory. So we're going to follow the flow. And then we're going to ask, how does this story show his glory. Now, if you were a director in a play, you'd see this story consisting of four different parts or four different acts. And each part would have their own unique details that are important that we need to pull out, but they would all in the end work together to tell us something spectacular about the main character. And the main character is Jesus. And the first part of this play would be called a joy-filled wedding. A joy-filled wedding. That's part one. Verse one says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. There was a wedding. So the occasion here is a celebration. It's a wedding. So you can imagine all the the people, all the smiles, all the 
good smells of the food. You can almost hear all the chatter, all the conversation. Somebody's crazy uncle's doing something embarrassing. It's a joyful occasion. Many of you have had your own wedding. Many of us have been to the wedding of somebody we love, and it's a joy-filled experience. No matter if the budget's low, no matter if the budget is through the roof, Either way, a wedding is a time of ceremony and it's a time of celebration. Now, usually in our culture, the wedding ceremony itself doesn't take very long. But it's the reception afterwards that can last throughout the entire evening. And so there's a lot of time, a lot of planning, a lot of effort going into it because weddings are important to us. You just think about it. Many little girls grow up dreaming about their perfect wedding. Where is it going to be? How's it going to look? And of course, what dress is she going to wear? Weddings are wonderful. And for the Jews during this day, even more so. In fact, their weddings could last up to an entire week. The entire celebration itself. And the whole family, not only the whole family, but the whole community would be invited to be a part of it. So this was a week-long, community-wide, joy-filled celebration. And John shows us who was a part of this wedding. The end of verse 1 says, the mother of Jesus was there. So Mary's in the house, celebrating with everybody, having a good time. Perhaps she's related to the bride. Maybe she's related to the bridegroom, connected to them in some way. Because as we'll see, she, she takes concern with, with the logistics of the wedding in a minute. But for now, let's just observe, observe that Mary is there, that she's a part of this joy-filled celebration. And not only her, but as verse 2 says, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, depending on your understanding of Jesus... You might find it amazing that he was at a joyful celebration like a wedding. And notice that Jesus wasn't there uninvited. It says Jesus was invited, which destroys the idea that Jesus was just some monk living in isolation in the corner of the house, not even knowing how to laugh or have a good time. Or that Christianity is just all about gloom. Look, Jesus never sinned, but he did enjoy life. And apparently people enjoyed having him around, which begs the question for those of us who might be tempted at times, not even to think it, but to live like no sin equals no fun. That holiness equals isolation by ourselves in the corner of the house. Serious living means no savoring life. I know we have all our own personalities. I'm not saying that you have to like ceremonies, that you have to like big occasions. I don't. But do we get invited to them? Are we the kind of people who are joyful to be around? Let's just be real, church. Debbie Downers are dishonest disciples because they proclaim, come find your greatest joy in Jesus. I have, and I'm the least joyful person, you know. Let's not be those kinds of people because that's not who Jesus is. Jesus would often be caught at tax collectors' houses and the religious folk would walk by and snarl and say, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? 
So no, our greatest fellowship shouldn't be with those who don't share what's greatest to us. And I'm certainly not saying to go and sin. I'm just wondering, could we get an invite? Because it wasn't below the creator of the universe to show up at a joy-filled wedding. So that's part one, which leads us to part two, a socially serious problem. So everything in this joy-filled wedding is hopping until we get to verse three, which says the wine ran out. And this was a serious problem, a socially serious problem. We have to have a couple of things in mind here when we read that the wine ran out. Number one, in their culture, it was upon the groom, not the bride. It was upon the groom to provide everything needed at the wedding celebration to which every man in the room with a daughter said, amen, right? So if the wine started to run out, it was the groom's fault which wouldn't be too big of a deal if it wasn't for the second thing, that this was a serious social expectation in a shame and honor culture. Meaning if the groom did not meet the expectations of the guests, at best, it would result in shame. Potentially months or years of embarrassment for this new couple as they begin their life together. But at worst, it would include that shame plus, get this, personal lawsuits. In this day and time, people could actually sue the groom for poor provisions at a wedding. So just imagine the look on the groom's face when the servants come up and say, sir, we have a problem. We just ran out of wine. And the groom looks out at the crowd and sees that everybody's there and they're thirsty. This is a socially serious problem. And Mary wants to do something about it. So verse three says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, what is Jesus going to do about this socially serious problem that has just been brought before him by his mother? Well, we can read his response in verse four. Jesus said to her, woman, What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And some of you are thinking, man, if I spoke to my mama like that, my hour would come real quick. (laughs) What an interesting response. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come. I think this deserves a couple comments before you husbands start quoting that to your wives after the service. The first thing that we can say about this is that Jesus was not being disrespectful. The term woman was used in a more respectful fashion than we often think of it as we just read it there. And I only have to point to one other place to prove that. In John chapter 19, you don't have to flip there, but in John chapter 19, Jesus is on the cross and he sees his widowed mother and he refers to her as woman again. But this time he does it as a way to ask for one of his disciples to take care of her. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So Jesus referred to his widowed mother as woman 
And in the same breath, he ensured that she'd be taken care of after he died. So at least we can know this wasn't disrespectful. But it was different. Not disrespectful, but different. This was not the typical way a son referred to his mom. So without disrespecting her, he is distancing himself. Mary is his mother, but now she must come to him like all sinners do. Kinship gets you no closer to Jesus. Now, there's a purpose behind all this. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. And as you read the gospel through, you find out that Jesus refers to this hour multiple times. And what he's talking about is the hour of his glorification where he is going to die and resurrect. So that's the hour he's referring to. He's going to die and resurrect and show his glory in the resurrection. So perhaps not knowing the specifics, Mary approaches Jesus and wants him to finally display his glory in some way. Maybe now's the perfect time at this wedding to, to, to show the world who you are. And Jesus says, woman, now is not the time. My hour has not come to fully glorify myself. And even though you are my mother, I am primarily about my father's business. My allegiance is to him. So this issue of the timing of my death doesn't concern you. That's what's going on here. In essence, in essence, it's a loving rebuke, a loving rebuke. And Mary takes it. She shows a faith-filled heart by her faith-filled response. Look at verse five. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Brothers and sisters, last week we talked about the importance of following Jesus. And I think Mary just captured what it means to follow Jesus in one sentence. A follower of Jesus does whatever he tells you to do. There's only one time in this gospel that Mary's words are recorded. And it couldn't be any more universally important. Do whatever Jesus tells you to do. That alone should force us to slow down and ask ourselves, am I doing whatever Jesus tells me to do? I also think this is a wonderful example of prayer for us. I mean, Mary came to the only one that she could trust. The only one with power to do as he wishes. So she approaches with this concern and this need on her heart and she leaves knowing I can't force God's hand. Yet she's comforted that her cares are now at the feet of Jesus. You see, even Jesus's mother couldn't force God's hand. Even she needs to come to him with a certain level of respect and trust that he's going to do what's right. Because prayer is not a means to go and twist God's arm into doing what we want him to do as opposed to what he wants to do. So what she does is she brings her concern before Jesus and she leaves trusting that he'll do what's best. In effect, she says, I don't know what's best, but he does. And I know that he'll do what's best. So do whatever he says to do. So what would Jesus do? What would he say to the servants? And that brings us to the third part, a behind the scenes miracle. 
Look at verse 6. A behind-the-scenes miracle. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. So we have six large stone jars that when they're combined, they hold up to at least 120 to 180 gallons of water. And Jesus has the servants fill these jars up to the brim with water. And he tells them to draw from these jars to take it to the master of the feast. So let's be clear about what's happening here. The miracle that we know is about to happen. The miracle that's about to be performed is about to be done from water in these jars. And John tells us something important about these jars in verse 6. He says these stones were for the Jewish rites of purification. What's he referring to there? The Jewish rites of purification. I'm going to read from Mark 7. This will give you an idea. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So the jars used in this passage are the same ones the Jews would use for purification purposes according to their traditions. And here's what happens when Jesus tells the servants to draw from those jars and to take it to the head waiter. Verses 9 through 10. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. So Jesus takes the water from the purification jars used in Jewish traditions and turns it into wine and apparently good wine. The best wine, 120 gallons worth of wine, which would be nearly a thousand bottles worth, which in today's economy would be $30,000 worth of wine. Now, typically... Since the groom was in charge of all the finances and because the wedding ceremony could last for a week and because everybody in town was invited, you can imagine the wine needed to last would have been pretty expensive. So to save on money, the groom would serve the best wine first, a little bit of really good wine. And once people have had a little bit to drink, once they've become a little bit inebriated, which is what that word drink freely means, and a little less concern with the taste of the wine, then you bring out the cheaper wine. And you just use that for the rest of the time. It saves you all money. But the master of this feast tastes the water turn into wine, this miracle wine, and says, you've kept the good wine until now? In other words, the wine that you're serving now is better than the good wine you served up front. It makes that look like the bad wine. And you have a thousand bottles worth? 
Oh, dear friends, Jesus supplies our every need. And with him, there is never any risk of running out. So what's going on here? By the way, if you're disturbed by Jesus turning water into wine, just calm down for a second. He's not doing anything illegal. So what's going on here? Jesus' mother asked him to help, and he rebukes her by saying his hour had not come. But then he goes on to help. It's like, why rebuke her, Jesus, if you're going to help anyways? Well, remember, the miracle is not about the miracle. It's not about water. It's not about water turning into wine. It's a sign of something greater. So when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, and then he goes and does this sign, what he's saying is, this is not the time for my death, but I will perform a sign to point to it. So he goes to these purification jars used for these Jewish traditions and turns the water into wine. And keep in mind, wine in the Old Testament was often talked about as, a, as, as something that was used in the midst of celebration. It was even something talked about pointing towards the future Messiah that would come. In Amos 9, it talks about a day when the mountains will drop sweet wine and the hills will flow with it. So John is mentioning these jars of purification, not only as a historical uh, detail. These were purposeful. Jesus chose these jars to say something. These Jewish jars of purification are being replaced by something that signifies the Messiah. Jesus is saying something is here that supersedes all of these religious traditions of purification. My hour has not come for me to spill my blood, but I will perform a sign of it. And surely Jesus did supersede these rituals. For Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus made purification for sins. That's why he took water from purification jars and turned it into wine. Because you don't go to the jars for purification You go to Jesus. I love what Leon Morris says on this point. He says, this particular miracle signifies that there's a transforming power associated with Jesus. He changes the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity. The water of Christlessness into the wine of the richness and fullness of eternal life in Christ. The water of the law into the wine of the gospel. So I just ask, do you see these things? I call it the behind the scenes miracle because not a lot of people saw him do it. Jesus didn't get credit for it. The groom got credit for it. So he did it behind the scenes because it wasn't his hour yet, but he performed a miracle that pointed to his hour. And I wonder if you see it. Which brings us to the fourth and final part of this story. A manifested glory. This behind-the-scenes miracle wasn't seen by hardly anybody at the party. The head waiter, it says he didn't know where it came from. He goes to the groom and says, you've served the best wine now. And even though the servants knew where it came from, it doesn't say they believed. Perhaps, Perhaps they saw the miracle but didn't see the sign. But the disciples did. They saw in this miracle a manifested glory in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. 
This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples, what? Believed in him. This sign was seen by none other than the disciples. And now John has included this story in this book so that you and I could join them in seeing and believing. Do you hear this story and see his glory? John wrote it so that we would see the glory of Jesus. That's why he's writing this book. In chapter one, he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So do you see the sign that Jesus performs here and see the glory of Jesus full of grace and truth? If not, let's close by just making it clear. By beholding the glory of Jesus that shines off this page. Let's ask as we close now. How does this story show his glory? First, this story shows his glory because Jesus is the bridegroom who provides. It's widely known that this was Jesus's first miracle as he began his public ministry. And I think it's telling that his first miracle was performed at a wedding feast in which the groom failed and Jesus didn't. Did you notice that? That the groom got the credit, but the groom failed. He ran out of wine. He had no more provisions left. This kind of sounds like you and me coming up short, unable to do what we ought to do all the time. And Jesus steps in and takes care of it. Jesus does the groom's job. We see pictures here that Jesus provides for the needs at the wedding feast, that he ensures his people will never run out and that he gives all his bride that she needs. Do you think perhaps Jesus in this very first miracle, the first thing he does to start his public ministry, do you think he had the end in sight? Do you think perhaps he was pointing to what would be happening in the end in Revelation 19? When it talks about, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Verse nine, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. What I just read right there is the same writer of the gospel of John but he's writing in the book of Revelation telling us what's going to happen at the end. That someday there's going to be a wedding feast and Jesus will be the groom and he will provide for the bride. So he shows himself as the one who provides for all our needs. That's how uh, the glory of Jesus shines off this page that he is the bridegroom who provides. I wonder, are you needy? Do you feel like the groom who comes up short and needs Jesus to step in and provide everything that you need? I know not the least of these needs is forgiveness for our sins, which we see next. Because we also see his glory in this story because he's the savior who purifies. He's the bridegroom who provides and he's the savior who purifies I don't know what kind of ritual practices you go through to make yourself right before God, but they do not work. 
Jesus supersedes the purification traditions of Judaism. Now people are purified in his blood. That means our sins are forgiven and they're cleansed because he faced the death that we deserved for them. And since he paid the punishment, we no longer have to. We're wiped clean if we receive this by faith. So your purification jars don't work. Your good deeds don't make yourself right before God. They're worthless. Whatever it is that you do to clean yourself up to make yourself look good at church in front of others, it doesn't purify. Showing up for an hour with a fake smile to hide the broken marriage or mouthwash to cover up what you did this morning does not work. You must come to the one who alone purifies. You cannot be cleansed by deeds and rituals. Cleansing comes by the death and resurrection of Jesus. We see his glory in this story as the Savior who purifies. So what will you do with Jesus? The one who transforms water to wine can transform a dead sinner to a living saint. And I love how simple verse 11 is. It tells us how to receive this. Verse 11 is so simple, it's appalling. Jesus manifested his glory and the disciples believed in him. Has he manifested his glory to you this morning? Have you seen him as the providing bridegroom and the purifying savior? Then believe in him and you will have life.